0: You're listening to Intergenerational Politics, hosted by Jill Winebanks and Victor Xi, We have conversations with amazing guests on the issues facing our country today and ask the questions all generations want answered. We hope you enjoy this episode. And once you're finished listening, leave us a rating or comment to support future episodes of Intergenerational Politics. This is Victor Xi, a freshman at UCLA and the youngest elected delegate for Joe Biden.
1: And I'm Jill Wine-Banks. I am the author of The Watergate Girl, an MSNBC legal analyst, and also the wearer of Jill's pins. And today, in honor of our very special guest, I'm wearing a microphone because she has a very big platform and uses a microphone to communicate with us. We are honored to be joined by Clarissa Ward, who has dedicated her career to illuminating stories and voices in war-torn countries. Currently, Clarissa is the chief international correspondent for CNN, a position that has entailed assignments in Syria, Egypt, Afghanistan, Russia, Lebanon, and many other countries. Most recently, she covered the military coup in Myanmar as the only international journalist in the country. Before CNN, Clarissa worked for Fox, ABC, and CBS, and her life risking courageous work made her the recipient of multiple Peabody, Emmy, and Murrow Award. Clarissa is also the author of a brilliant new memoir that Victor and I both enjoy called On All Fronts. Victor's holding up a cover of it. The Education of a Journalist. We look forward to getting to know Clarissa, talking with her about her career, her memoir, and her thoughts on the state of journalism today. Thank you very much for joining us today, especially because you're joining us from London. Oh,
2: wow. Well, thank you for that beautiful introduction. Really, it's so kind and generous of you. And I'm very, very excited to be joining you this afternoon, my time, morning, your time.
0: Yes, we are as well. Um, You know, let's begin by talking about maybe your recent assignment to Myanmar, because I understand that you were the only international journalist in the country covering the Um, February military coup that jailed the um, democratically elected government and then declared a state of emergency, put the military in charge, and has now caused the deaths of over 700 civilian protesters so far and injured thousands. So maybe first, how did you gain access into Myanmar?
2: So we approached a man who is working with the military junta as a sort of consultant in communications. His name is Ari Ben-Manashe, and he is a Canadian-Israeli. And we told him, listen, we want to go and see the situation for ourselves on the ground in Myanmar. He approached the military, and uh, for whatever reasons, to be honest, I'm not entirely sure of them, uh, they agreed. They agreed that we would go. And so we traveled. Uh, We were a team of three at CNN, and also one other female reporter, Allegra Mendelssohn, who was writing for the Washington Post and Al Jazeera, but who works at a small paper in Cambodia called the Southeast Asia Globe. And of course, what that meant, when you go in with the permission of the military, and often this is something we wrestle with as journalists, right? Like the only access into a country is with a brutal or oppressive or murderous regime. We've encountered this in North Korea. We've encountered this in Syria with Bashar al-Assad. And what it basically means is that you're sort of limited in what you can do. And where you can go, and certainly and who you can talk to, your movements are heavily controlled, and this was no exception. We had six trucks of soldiers uh following us around. We had a car full of minders, we had plain clothes uh security services with their iPhones, like filming our every move. We had translators we i mean it was one of the largest retinues I think I have ever traveled with, and the goal of that was to intimidate us and to intimidate people. Uh, on the outside, who might be tempted to talk to us. But as you probably saw with our report, what was so amazing was that people were not cowed by that. And they still approached us when they had an opportunity to do so.
0: Yeah. And can you describe how bad it is in Myanmar? Because as your report showed, people are dying because they want to return to democracy. And people even, uh, you know, the people who talk to you, they some of them got arrested. Just how bad is the situation in Myanmar right now?
2: I mean, the situation is really horrific. And I think it's important for listeners to understand that, like, for more than half a century, the people of Myanmar have lived under repressive military rule. And then for the last decade, they got a taste of freedom. They got a taste of democracy. And you had this democratically elected government. And suddenly, Myanmar was, like, on fire. The economy was growing. And it was a really thriving and exciting place. And you have this whole generation of young people who are super connected, uh, not just within the country, but within the global community as well. And so when this coup happened, you very quickly had a huge amount of people who were just like, hell no, frankly, Um, there's no way we're going to go back to the dark age. That's what one woman told me. It really stayed with me. She's like, we're not going back to the dark age. We're just not doing it. And I think the military hadn't necessarily quite factored in how much popular support was not with them, how actually they're pretty much hated uh, by the vast majority of people in Myanmar. I think they really overplayed their hand. And that meant they had to improvise in the moment when they saw this huge swell of hundreds of thousands of protesters coming out into the streets. Every single day, bringing the economy to a halt, refusing to go to work, refusing to, uh, you know, the, the ministries could barely function. The military cracked down in the only way they know how, with crushing force. And they have been on a killing spree, really, ever since, shooting at these protesters, at these protests. They say that they are violent anarchists and that they need to be suppressed. And that's their argument for the violence. But when you look at the numbers, it's pretty clear what's going on. As you said, more than 700 people killed in two months, 44 children among the dead, according to the UN. And not only that, the people who are being detained, they're coming out of prison with all sorts of torture marks, with beatings, and so it's horrendous. And as you mentioned, and, you know, one of the one of the toughest parts of this trip, but also one of the most extraordinary demonstrations of courage I've ever seen. We went to a market one day. We were filming people selling their wares. And people just started coming up to us and flashing the three-finger Hunger Games slew, which has become the symbol of defiance against military rule. And then they started banging their pots and pans, traditionally to ward off evil spirits, but it's become like the signature sound of resistance. They knew we were surrounded by the military. They knew we were surrounded by uh, security services, but they didn't care because they had one shot to let the outside world know that they weren't going back to the dark ages, that they were going to continue to fight for democracy and dignity. And at least 10 people were arrested for having talked to us or engaged. with Some of them didn't even talk to us, but they were there. They were rounded up. We put a lot of pressure on the junta and uh, they were released in a few days. But it goes to show you just how threatened the military is by the power of the people because they know that they do not have the support of their own people.
0: I mean, the courage that the civilians have for returning to democracy and, like you said, just not giving into this is so inspiring. And I'm wondering if you think the situation is going to get any better in the coming months and maybe also whether or not you'll go back sometime in the near future.
2: In terms of whether the situation's getting any better, I would have to say no, because what happens when you brutally crack down on unarmed pro-democracy protesters, what happens is that people become embittered, they become radicalized often, they become militarized, and we're seeing that starting to happen because people who are part of the resistance movement understand that they cannot fight off guns and RPGs. Uh, with barricades and you know shields made of plywood. And so already we're hearing reports of some of these young activists going to the jungle yeah. where some of these ethnic militias are and trying to get training with them. And so you see the seeds beginning of what could potentially be some kind of a civil war. And that's why a lot of people mm. are worried about that. We heard someone from the UN recently compare it to the beginnings of Syria. And having covered both conflicts really closely, I can say that I do see some parallels. Because whenever you have a populace that is willing to march into a hail of bullets to demand dignity, and then you also have a regime that's willing to kill as many people as it takes and destroy the country to protect its own interests, and then you also have the international community standing on the sidelines, wringing their hands, issuing condemnations, but not really able to come together forcefully in union to take a robust response to put an end to the violence, then you have a recipe, very, very sadly, for, um, for real violence, for real civil strife. And so um, I do think I'll keep trying to get Myanmar on television as much as possible I want. Americans particularly to be really engaged with this story. I think it's a story that resonates with a lot of people in the U.S. And um, I will hope that it continues to get better, but
1: I'm not optimistic. So let me ask you a follow-up question to that. Um, you mentioned parallels to Syria. Do you see any parallels between what happened in Myanmar and what happens in America on January 6th?
2: I mean to be honest, I it's an interesting question, and it's not one that I had given a lot of um, thought to in in candor. Look, I think the real difference there was, you know, these were bloody riots incited by people who felt that um, they had been cheated and robbed, right? When they hadn't, that that feeling that they had. I'm talking about the Capitol right. rioters. That feeling that they had was sowed by politicians, and it was predicated on a lie, right? We know that. The difference in Myanmar is that the people were legitimately robbed. And what do I mean when I say that? Well, it actually stems, ironically, if we're going to continue on this parallel theme, from an election in November, just like in the US. Mm -hmm. And in this election in November in Myanmar, the NLD party won The vast majority of seats. I mean, it was what you would call an absolute landslide election. And the military's party, the USDP, won well, really, it suffered a humiliating defeat. It won a handful of seats. And so the military was suddenly faced with this embarrassment, but it was also faced with the realization of what do we do now? Because we were kind of counting on being able to retire out of the military and and segue into politics and still continue to like control the levers of power. But it's getting trickier to do if they're winning by such a landslide. So they claim fraud. They claim fraud. And international independent observers say there were no widespread instances of fraud that were uh, that were seen. And the military used that as the pretext, basically, to, to, to stage this coup and to take away from people what was rightfully theirs, which was their democratically elected government.
1: I'm hearing the story of January 6th because you have the same thing. The Democrats won by over 7 million votes. And the Republican president said, I'm not leaving office. This was stolen from me, which is a lie. And rallied his supporters to go and attack before the vote was confirmed by Congress as our Constitution requires. And so it's the same thing of trying to overthrow our legitimate government processes to stay in power. And the same thing is true here. The, the military wanted to have more power than the people had voted it. And they took military action. Uh, here, the president refused to call out the military to protect the members of Congress, to protect his own vice president. So I just see.
2: I guess the key difference for the people of Myanmar is that in the U.S., democracy prevailed, right? And it was a deeply disturbing moment for most Americans and very troubling. Uh, But democracy prevailed. The new president was sworn in. and, And life does continue, maybe not as normal per se, but like life continues. Whereas in Myanmar, there is no opening these people. Now, the military has said, oh, yes, we're going to hold elections in a year. Now they've kind of moved that date out slightly. And they say within two years, we'll hold these elections. But what sane person in Myanmar would actually have faith in that promise when they just won in a landslide in an election five months ago and it was stolen from them? So why would they ever believe that there will be a fair election again? And that, I think, is the reason why they are really willing to go all out and risk everything and even allow this to become bloodier, because they see this as a kind of existential moment where if they don't fight tooth and nail for this democracy, they will never
3: get to taste it again.
1: That's a very, very good distinction in terms of democracy prevailed in America and not Myanmar. Is there anything that you see that the U.N. or any other country can do to uh, this democracy to return?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot more. The problem you have is that, you know, the the Russia, for example, China, um, the so-called spoilers on the, the U.N. Security Council, they're not willing to back mm. any wording or any action that is overly critical. Of the junta or forces the junta to step down. And so that makes it basically impossible. The international community is effectively hamstrung. We saw this in Syria as well. As long as you have those two key nations who are unwilling to challenge this kind of autocratic brutal, brutality, mm. then what can really be done? Even with some countries that are closer to the US um, and share similar values, I'm thinking of. South Korea and uh, some countries like Ukraine and Israel that have sold weapons to Myanmar. um, They probably wouldn't do that again in a hurry. But there hasn't necessarily been yet what I would call a broad consensus between the U.S. and its allies coming up with some really strong language and a robust framework for trying to end this illegal coup.
1: I, I am quite sure that your coverage is going to help. In that regard, and possibly bring about some change. But let's let's move to your book. On all fronts, the education of a journalist. Uh, it has so many gripping stories from your time in war zones, uh, Syria and Baghdad, Afghanistan. Uh, but it simultaneously tells a very personal story of your childhood, time in journalism, um, and the lessons you've learned. And I would like to talk about what it was like for you to write the book and who was your target audience
2: so i wrote the book when i was pregnant with my first son um it started out as he was my target audience i was like i would really like for my future child to know Mm. who i am other than being mommy right like i'm a person like and with a history and adventures and all sorts of things that he will probably hear stories about but like it's different to really get in the mind of someone. So I started writing it as a letter to him. And then my agent was like, this is kind of weird because you're writing a letter to your baby son and there's like all sorts of cursing and death. And like, (laughs) so we were like, okay, maybe we need to reframe this slightly. And, and what I realized as I was writing it is a couple of things. First of all, I think it ended up being a love letter to journalism basically. And, my target audience really is people who care about people and who are interested in forging human connections, who are interested in other people's stories. So maybe people who are less focused on the news and more interested in stories and the power of human connection. And there's so many moments in a journalist's career that never make it onto the evening news, right? Um, that are behind the camera, that are beautiful, that speak volumes about a people or a place or a culture or a conflict. And this was a home for all of those moments to be shared with a wider audience.
1: One of the reasons I loved the book was because of those stories. I actually, my undergraduate degree was journalism. I really wanted to be a journalist, but I ended up being a lawyer for a bunch of odd reasons. But also, as the author of a memoir, I thought, how she have written this while she was constantly traveling and covering conflicts, and at the same time writing a book? Um, I mean, it took me years and I was basically, you know, living in one place. Yeah. So
2: no, I couldn't have done that. that? I, I couldn't have done that. I wrote it on my maternity leave. I ah. wrote the first draft on my maternity leave in three months. And then when I had to do like the second round of revisions, it took me a year because I was back to work. And then it's like, you just can't, you don't have that bandwidth. You don't have that time. And particularly with my job, it's so erratic. Like I'll have two kind of chill days where I have quite a bit of time to work on other projects. And then I'll have two weeks where like, I can't even sleep. So, um, I never could have written this book without maternity leave. It's, um, Yeah. Very great. And it's
1: very hard to get back to if you take two weeks off. Then you have to sort of like put yourself back in the mind two weeks ago. Yeah, it's too hard. um, Yeah. But you also, I thought one of the other things that was interesting was how you got into journalism. Mm -hmm. Um, You wrote that you were a reckless teenager at Yale when 9-11 happened and that that changed everything for you. And I think there's a passage in your book captures your decision to become a journalist after 9/11. So yeah. I would love you to read the first full paragraph on page 25 and you can yeah. either read it or just talk about it however you want.
2: I mean, I so 9/11 happened and I felt like okay, this is the only thing that matters. I, you know, it's great that I had pink hair and was into French new wave cinema and all that stuff, but really like that's not as important as this. And what is this all about? And how has this been bubbling beneath the surface and I've been unaware of it? And how can we engage? How can we get out to the ends of the world wherever this hatred is coming from and understand it better and improve communication? I really was fixated on this idea that 9-11 was in some small part, at least, the result of a complete breakdown of communication, of understanding, of a total dehumanization. And so this epiphany for me was about, I want to go there, wherever there is. I didn't really know exactly at the time. And I want to understand what's going on. And I want to bring that back home. And I also want to bring a piece of home to there as well. And in the process, improve this sort of communication. So, you know, there was a lot of hubris involved because I was 22 and like, I you know, <laughs> like didn't know anything about anything. Um, but that's good. You know, that's where you're meant to be idealistic when you're young. And um, as Victor knows well. And, um, and of course at that age as well, or at that stage in my career, I didn't really understand everything that comes with conflict reporting. I knew I wanted to be on the front lines somehow in my gut, but I didn't give a lot of thought about what that would mean and how that would change my life and, and the kind of effects that that would have on me and the toll it would ultimately take. Um, which is not to say I regret it for a moment. I certainly don't, but, um, when I meet young conflict, aspiring conflict reporters, I do take some time to explain to them that, it, you know, the, the check comes at some point for, for everyone who does the work. Like, I mean, as you guys know, you read the book, Like nobody gets to just coast through this job without um, taking it on your soul.
1: And did you have a mentor or did you have even a role model or an inspiration?
2: I had so many. I mean from like Martha Gelhorn, like way back in the day to uh you know, Christian was something of a of an mm-hmm. inspiration to me when I was younger. Martha Raditz was wonderful when I worked at A B C. Liz Palmer when I worked at C B S. Um And, and also so many male colleagues, my colleagues at Fox, Jonathan Hunt, who was like basically forcing me to do pieces to camera. When I was a producer, I was 25 years old. And he was like, mom, we're going to get you on television, but I need you to step up. I need you to start, um, you know, doing these little pieces to camera. And, and I'm so, so profoundly grateful for that push. Um, because if you don't have people supporting you and pushing you, the amount of confidence it takes to be like, oh no, I should really be the person to stand in front of 6 million people right now and look into a camera and and expound on like very complex and weighty subjects. (laughs) You really need a lot of people to help you rise to that occasion. And that's what I love about television though. It takes a village. It takes a village, and it's a collaborative team sport. I always thought that print, it, while I have enormous respect for my print colleagues, it just seems so solitary. You know, you
1: just mentioned, and you talk in your book about the importance of communicating in a clear, thoughtful way, truthful. Um, and was that one of the motivating forces for your going into journalism? And right now, today, that seems harder than it ever was. Uh, what's, what are your feelings on that?
3: I think it's, so it's
2: twofold. It's about communicating in a clear way, but it's also about humanizing, right? Because I see that we always have forces in the world that are actively encouraging what I would call dehumanization, who don't want you to engage with the other. They don't want you to understand the other. We're just told that the other is evil and must be fought or killed at all costs, and while I understand the sort of rationale for taking an approach like that, as a journalist, it's kind of antithetical to my work. Like, I really want to understand what this other is about, how they see things, um, why they are the way they are, or all the beliefs they do. And I think that's the role of a journalist is to constantly be challenging, to constantly be questioning, to constantly be humanizing, not with the goal necessarily of affecting policy or changing the world per se, because, you know, I think you learn to have a bit more humility over the years of doing this job, but with the goal of, you know, holding people accountable and making sure that people in positions of power are not just making decisions based on what they think is best, but based on what's in the best interests of, of many different people.
0: Yeah. So, you know, 9-11 hit. And so you describe that moment as something that's, you know, transformational for your interest in journalism. And then you go to CNN as an intern in their Moscow bureau in 2003. And, you know, as a college student and you know having talked with some uh recent college grads i don't think that going to moscow would be their first uh necessarily necessary choice after college but how did that come about for you why was moscow um your first destination
3: um
2: well so first of all i majored in comparative literature and i was studying french italian and russian literature um i spoke french and italian pretty well i had only just taken some introductory courses with russian so um It seemed like I wanted to go somewhere somewhere that I was already learning the language, that I was already engaged with the culture. I'd visited Russia when I was 16, and I kind of fell in love with the the, the mysterious enigma of it. And, um, And it felt like close enough to home, I mean, definitely far from home, but also close enough not to be like totally crazy. Whereas going to the Middle East or something at that stage, I wouldn't have had the confidence or the knowledge um, or the wherewithal to even do that. So um, I think I just sort of implicitly understood that if I wanted to be in the field, I kind of needed to go out there and just get stuck in. And it was a really hard three months. It was exceptionally lonely. (laughs) and uh at the end of it I went back to New York and I spent 2 years basically working on the desk to understand like how a news organization works but it had also prepared me enough that I understood the only place I wanted to be ultimately was in the field like hmm. I was never going to be um I was never going to be on the editorial side or the production side I I, I don't think I was ever going to be a US based correspondent I always <clears> wanted to be overseas.
0: you describe your first paid assignment working overnight at fox and that was more kind of behind the scenes working at the overnight desk and again i think most college grads wouldn't necessarily uh, work overnight and spend long hours in the wee hours in the That's morning doing that. <laughs> yeah what compelled you to do that was that an easy decision to kind of adjust to that morning routine I mean, or
2: to be honest it wasn't easy on any level first of all i didn't particularly want to work for fox okay i mean fox wasn't as bad as it is today but it was still pretty bad um but I didn't particularly want to work for Fox, but CNN were telling me I was going to have to wait a few months before I could start working for them. And I was like, oh, that's crazy. You know, when you're 23, you're like, three months? Like, I might be dead. Like, I must start working <laughs> immediately. Um, so, and I, of course, didn't want to work on the overnights. But I just understood that you know, know, everyone tells you when you're in college that the world's your oyster, and it's like, "Eh," sort of, like it's not really. Actually, it's great that you're ready for the world, but now what the world is going to teach you is humility, and like you have to be somebody who is willing to sacrifice a lot in terms of your personal life, your social life, your fun, all that that stuff, and really go hard or go home. Mm -hmm. So I took the first job that was a full time paying job that was offered to me. I worked my behind off. I um, would leave work at nine in the morning and I would go and take Arabic lessons. And always in the back of my mind, I was like, this is a temporary stop. This is not the final destination. The war in Iraq had just started. I kept lobbying my boss. Let me go to Iraq. Let me go to Iraq. He was like, you're really annoying and you're 23 and you've been here two weeks No, um, But eventually after a year or a year and a half, he was like, fine you can go no one else wanted to go anymore it was too dangerous it was like the middle of the summer it was 120 mm-hmm. degrees and so they sent me to baghdad for a six-week producer rotation and after that i quit fox i moved on my own to beirut i set up shop as a freelancer um and the rest really is history and the only other thing i would say there to underscore and i hope this comes across in my book like the ability to make kind of big decisions like that go move to moscow and then go move to beirut and become a freelancer it's like I could never have done that without the support of my parents. And my parents mm. have been like hugely supportive of me. Um, both emotionally and financially at times, as I have really tried to, you know, make this dream come true. And I, I, I can't say enough how like incredibly grateful I am to them because I could not I wouldn't have had the courage or the confidence to do it without their support.
0: I think that is definitely a point that comes across in your book. And, you know, as a recent Yale college grad to be in you know Beirut or Baghdad, you know, that must have been a kind of a, a, a disorienting experience. And you mentioned that um, you had this, uh, you know, there's a part of your book on page 60 that basically describes your um, time in Baghdad. And it was your really first experience with fear. And I think you described it as like war as hell. Did you imagine that I guess first, that a war correspondent entailed that. And then second, how did you, I guess, learn to deal with fear? Because, you know, many people will say that you're fearless, but how did you learn to deal with those different yeah. risks and fears?
2: If you're fearless, you're stupid, by the way. It's okay? <laughs> like when there's bombs going off, like you should be afraid. That's a very healthy reaction. Um. So the part of the book you're talking about is just after we had basically we were under attack. It was a triple suicide car bombing attack on the hotel that we were living in. And after the second blast went off, we knew we were under attack. And it was kind of this very chilling moment where it became clear that we could die
3: um,
2: because they'd already penetrated two blast walls with the first two bombs. And now there was this enormous cement mixer truck full of explosives and basically got caught on some razor wire so the truck was kind of lurching back and forth. Fortunately, it was about I don't know how many like ten, twenty yards away from the entrance of the hotel. If it had been, if it had been able to go right up to the hotel, we we all would have died. But it got stuck on that razor wire, and someone eventually shot the driver. Um, but you know, here's what I would say: that was my first moment of like really coming close to death, and it was also the first moment where I actually understood what fear really felt like. What being in life or death situations feels like because nothing can prepare you for that except on the ground experience everything you know about war basically comes from books and movies and whether by design or not books and movies do make war sound rather glamorous at times and rather exciting mm-hmm. and and you know there are moments where war can be those things but it's also just like really petrifying and awful and not even just awful in the sense of like how many people are dying or whatever, just awful in the sense of you will find yourself in a situation that you don't know how to get out of where you could lose your life. And so, yeah, that was the first time I really wrestled with that. And fortunately, you know, it's happened several other times, but I, I try not to make a habit of it. I really, really try to avoid getting into situations where it's potentially a life or death situation. Um, but it you is. Because
1: with a child, fun. that would be a good idea.
2: Yes, exactly. And I do I think that having kids changes your calculation. Not that you want to stop not that I want to stop going to war zones, but I would say I'm definitely very conservative about what I will do in a war zone. And I understand
3: that my primary obligation is as a
1: when that event happened, um, you were still doing I think mostly behind the camera yeah. work. Um, but then when you were twenty six, you did your first live shot in Beirut. And you've already, I think, mentioned that you were being pushed to do this. Um, but can you tell our audience a little bit about the difference between being a producer, being behind the, the camera,
3: yeah.
2: and then
1: being the ones telling the story in front of it?
2: So, I mean, being a producer, if you're going to be like an A-level producer, there it, it is, there is an extraordinary skill set that is required of you. I never reached that level, so um i didn't have to deal with most of the pressure the organization the knowledge of technology the editorial knowledge the ability to make really difficult situations on a split second and in, in very tense um situations uh really difficult decisions rather in tense situations so um being a producer is is a, it's it takes uh, extraordinary talent for me as a sort of starting out producer, to go to a starting out correspondent, it was 10 times the pressure, right? Because as a producer, I was a neophyte and I was working with really experienced correspondents who were willing to give me the benefit of the doubt. And I would work as hard as I could for them, but I didn't feel any sense of real pressure because I was protected by their largesse, basically. As a correspondent at the age of 26, Talking about incredibly complex, weighty global issues, um, looking into a camera, not looking at your notes, speaking with fluency, um, allowing for some nuance, speaking with conviction and authority and clarity to an audience of, you know, millions of people who you can't actually see, um, it's absolutely petrifying, absolutely petrifying. And then having that standard, like that's all you're always held to that standard. If you fail, you fail publicly and there are repercussions. I am very, very blessed that I came of age as a correspondent before social media. I don't know how younger reporters do it now with all the sort of hatred and vitriol on Twitter and everybody's a critic. And um, I think it's like an exponentially larger amount of pressure and I don't think it's helpful. But I didn't have to deal with quite that much pressure. And so, you know, you make mistakes and you soldier on. You go blank on television and you sputter your way through it and you do another live shot the next hour and you hope you don't do that again. And you learn from your mistakes. And there's nobody out there who hasn't made mistakes. Like, that's part of the deal. That's how you learn. If you haven't made mistakes, then you're probably
3: not very good
2: because you've never tried to expand your talent.
1: But although you described that your nervousness has continued, that it's not just when you first did it. Um, and given that you have survived and keep subjecting yourself to war zones where you are in danger of dying, I'm trying to understand how you can feel nervous standing in front of a camera.
2: I know, but it's, I really do. I still get, it's, it's that, I get like a little buzz. Of nerves slash adrenaline before every single live shot. And I need that, honestly. If I don't get that, that's what gives me the yeah. momentum to be like, I'm talking to you decisively, authoritatively, and with great clarity. And these are the facts. And I'm like, it just gives me the energy, particularly because often on these stories, we are sleep deprived. Like you can't even imagine. I'll be sleeping three or four hours a night, maybe, and still you know, 16 hours a day on television, bright lights in your eyes, like probably haven't eaten properly because, you know, who has time to eat on these stories and and be expected to speak fluently about complicated issues. So yes, I'm nervous. And I'm nervous also because ultimately, like, I see this as a big responsibility. You know, I, I don't, I think the minute you get too cavalier as a journalist, you're in trouble. Like, my job is to ensure that the public trusts me or trusts us at mm-hmm. CNN. And, and how do I, how do I continue to earn that trust? How do I continue to, to make the viewer or the listener feel that I am somebody that they can pay attention to, that I am somebody they can believe what I say? Like we're in an age right now where people have lost all faith in, particularly in mainstream media and in the idea of truth and in the idea of facts. So for me, this is like an existential moment, right? You had the 9-11 calling, and now you have this calling, which is like, people, we need to all start believing again in the idea that there is fact and fiction, that there is truth and there are lies. And we all understand that our perspectives are subjective and that there are biases that are implicit in that. But at least can we get on the same page that like, you know, this is white. It's white, (laughs) right? (laughs) That's That's what it is. And and my microphone is black, and like, because otherwise we're in real trouble as a society.
1: It's one of the advantages you were mentioning that you had the advantage of not being subjected to social media when you started out. During Watergate, there were only three networks, and they all had the same fact. There was no dispute about the fact that my microphone is rhinestone and yours is okay. black. Those were agreed. And so we could talk about opinions. Without having this lack of information and lies on one side. Um, but going back to your first time on air, there was something that really, um, pulled me in, um, because it's something that I had similar things happen was right after you were on air, you got a note from one of your Fox News colleagues.
3: Yeah. And I'm
1: going to read that note. Quote, you're going to be a star. And trust me, I know Roger Ailes. He loves girls who wear their hair down. He once told Megyn Kelly not to wear her hair up anymore. You guys have similar hair, so I know that he's preferred. Gotta look out for you sexy girls. So uh, I'd like you to talk to me as a reporter who happens to be a woman, how you reacted to that. Well, um, I think we
2: can see how I reacted. <laughs> okay. I still wear my hair up. Sorry, Roger. Um I still wear my hair up. But listen, there's no question when you get that note when you're twenty-six years old, you're like, Wow, I'm I'm failing because I don't look like the mold. Like I don't look like I'm supposed to look. And so I tried to wear my hair down and I wore it down mm-hmm. for one live shot and my mother pulled me up like fulminating, saying that I look like SpongeBob SquarePants. And she was like, well, really doesn't scoot you and you look ridiculous, like stop. And also because like, hello, I'm in Baghdad. Okay. I don't have a hair dryer. Okay. Like, what are you talking about? I'm going to have like some pretty bouffant blowout. Like it's completely absurd. And, um, you know, it's probably part of why Fox never offered me a contract to be, um, an on-air correspondent for them. And I'm okay with that. And, and I do think that we've come a long way since then in the industry. I think we still have a long way to go, to be honest. But definitely one of the really lousy parts of this job is facing a lot of pressure about your appearance. And especially when you're younger, as you get older, you're kind of a bit like, whatever, like talk to the hand because I just don't care. But I remember being like 27 and like, I'd go on, you know, Twitter or whatever it was on the internet. and People would be like, you know, oh, she's anorexic. She looks like a horse. She's got, you know, like someone needs to give her a mouthful of hay. I still remember that. Like,
3: oh
1: my God.
2: And, and even though, you know, like not to get upset, like it's hard, it's hard. Like, you know, I'm not a supermodel for God's sake. Right. Like that's not why I got into this job. So, um, I do think that young women, much more so than, than young men in this industry, face like just a ridiculous amount of pressure about their appearance, their weight, their hair, and all, all of this stuff. And, um, uh, it's a lot. It's, it's a lot.
1: And I had the same thing when I was, um, the chief operating officer of the American Bar Association, who was told that I didn't look like the image of the profession. I had a firm in my
2: Oh, wow. And
1: this must have been the 80s. I, what a cruel era. It was very cruel. And I, I, but I actually let the firm grow out and never firmed it again, uh, because I was trying to fit Uh, so it, it, but it seems to me that at POC, there was extraordinary sexism, misogyny, and made it hard to balance doing your job, which as you described, you're in. Baghdad without a hairdryer. How do you even think about doing that? Um do you do you think it was worse at Fox? Do you think things are much better oh, now? It's
2: definitely worse at Fox. I mean, listen, it exists at every network and and you know, don't let anyone tell you differently. Every television is a superficial medium. It's a visual medium and looking good is part of it it's not that you gotta be a beauty queen, but you just have to look put together, right? Um and if you're a beauty queen, by the way, I think it helps. Um, I think it's changing, as I said, which is great. Although I would still like to see, I see a lot of men over the age of 60, uh, um, on television news. I don't see a lot of women over the age of 60 on television news. And I'm hoping that that will be like the next frontier where we see a lot of change. We see a lot more diversity now. Uh, thank goodness. But listen, it's a slow process. And yeah, Fox was the worst offender because Roger was, you know, an unabashed misogynist. Um, But misogyny can lurk in all sorts of corners, as we we now know from the Me Too movement.
1: So when you went to ABC in 2007, you were stationed in Russia and in China. They have authoritarian governments, but they're not war zones. So was that a very different experience for you than being in a war zone? Um,
2: Yeah, I mean, very different. Very different. Um, It's a different kind of battle. It's a different kind of. Uh, resilience that you need um, it's not and you don't have the adrenaline right the one thing about being in a war zone is that like you do have adrenaline because things are exciting things are happening even when things are boring for a while because there's a lot of killing time in war as well um, there's a certain kind of intensity Whereas suddenly you get spat out to Moscow or Beijing. And when I was in Moscow, it wasn't the big story, right? It was a great Mm -hmm. opportunity for me to cut my teeth and get a job at the age of 27 as a network correspondent, which was like, you know, um, incredibly exciting, and a real privilege, but it wasn't a big story. So I would go months and months being like, (laughs) and they were like, so you sort of learned, like, I need to find other ways to get on television. And I made a sort of niche for myself Basically doing stories that were kind of feature stories, basically quirky feature stories about, you know, I would visit volcanoes in Vanuatu and, uh, you know, bizarre sects in um, in Siberia and, you know, on and on and on. Um, And that was how I kind of like made my name in addition to then covering the, the few big events that were happening. Um, but really it all changed for me in 2011 when the Arab Spring started and I was living in Beijing and ABC didn't want me to go to the Middle East to cover it. And having lived in the Middle East for three years, I was like, you know what? Bye. So I went and joined CBS and I started covering the Syrian conflict. And that was really the moment I think that my career
1: kind of took off.
0: Yeah. When, you know, we can't cover all of the stories in your memoir because there's so many, but I I think that it, it's kind of remiss of us not to cover your time in Syria because that was really just kind of the where the meat I think lied in, in so much of of your book and you know it's also kind of illustrative of your experience as a war correspondent as well I, I what struck me at first was kind of your description of the Syrian culture and you recount being a how being a woman in Syria entailed you know sexism and misogyny but also it's, you said that it allowed you to kind of blend in as a journalist and give you traits that uh I guess advantages that men didn't have. Can you explain that a little bit cuz um both Jill and I found that really fascinating. This
2: perception that like oh if you're a woman in the Middle East it's going to be awful and and you know you're not going to have any freedom and actually I've always found it to be kind of the reverse. First of all because in very mm. traditional conservative societies I have access to 50% of the population that my male colleagues don't. I can go and sit with the women in the kitchen and believe me they have fascinating gems to share and they have a totally different perspective on conflicts. And that voice I think is hugely needed, particularly when you're covering war. It tends to all be sound bites from the men who are fighting. I'm like, I wanna get more of those women in the kitchen in this story. And maybe if we had more of those voices in these stories, we wouldn't have so much war. Mm-hmm. Um secondly just from a sort of logistics point of view, I can cover my hair and put on an abaya, like a black robe that basically covers my whole body. And no one really can even tell I'm a Western journalist anymore. No one's even really looking at me. I kind Mm. of melt into the scenery, which is such a privilege as a reporter to finally be able to kind of melt into the background and and observe as opposed to becoming the story or becoming the pivotal focus of the scene. So I've, and, and, and also people don't view you as much of a threat. So, you know, I've done a lot of work with jihadis, interviewing jihadis, visiting with the Taliban in Afghanistan. And like, I couldn't have done that as a man. But as a woman, it's kind of like, well, she's obviously got a really patient husband and she's a bit weird, you know, but it's not the same thing of like, she's a spy and we must kill her. It has a slightly different flavor to it. Um, so I think that actually being a woman and operating in some of these very challenging, very um conservative fundamentalist uh, societies and when you are talking about the Taliban or, or jihadists. I think that being a woman has been a- a sort of a blessing in many ways. It's allowed to me to get to places that, that other male colleagues have not been able to get to.
0: Yeah. And the, you know, there's another, I guess you, you mentioned how you really got to know the woman in Syria and the people in Syria as well. And I think part of that lies in this notice that I kind of observed in your book, which is that in Syria, unlike the other countries that you visited, you lived with host families as opposed to living in hotels. How did that, live? I guess, another two-part question, but how did you how did that living experience change your reporting and perception of Syria? And, you know, you also mentioned covering jihadists who killed many of the people who you talked to and knew. Did that make it more difficult to confront jihadists?
2: It made it more personal. It made it more personal because it was like, you know, you had rage feeling. And, and,
3: and also just like a desperate need to understand. Like it was like a personal, like, I have to get my head around it. My friend was
2: killed. How are there people in the world who can justify this? And, you know, so it became a very personal quest, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, And you're right. Listen, normally I go to a hotel at the end of the day and there's other journalists there. And maybe we sit at the bar and have a beer and, or I call my husband or FaceTime with my kids or whatever. I have that distance from a conflict, right? I have that place that I can step back to and detach a little bit.
3: And Syria didn't have that. You get
2: back from your day on the front line and be sitting in the room with the women, only to find out that one of the men had been killed, and they're writhing around on the floor, pulling their hair out, screaming in grief. And you're right there; you're in the moment with them. There's no, there's no privacy for them. You are part of this very intimate moment. You're in their grief, and that, that meant that it does. It
3: just became extremely
2: personal to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt very, very moved by what was happening in Syria, and I felt fundamentally driven to try to help. And then I went through a period of depression when I really wasn't able to help. In the long run, I came out the other side and understood my role as a journalist in a much more humble way, which is, you know, I'm not there to solve the world's problems. I'm there to try to shine a light on some of them, try to hold people accountable, try to give a voice to people who maybe don't have one. But it's not my job. To end the Syrian civil war, and, and if
3: I if I haven't achieved that, that's okay. That doesn't mean I failed. Um, but it took me it took me some time to make peace with that.
0: That's one of the points that really stuck out to me when I read your time in Syria. It's just this kind of inner battle that you know you're a journalist and you want to make a difference for these Syrian families, but you also want to do your job of kind of reporting the facts. And I guess to follow up more on that question, how difficult was it to see um, innocent Syrians being killed, but little action from governments. You know, there was this one passage where you wrote an email to Ben Rhodes. But how how did you wrestle with I mean, that? I,
3: I tell you what was
2: maddening about it. Look, first of all, anytime you see civilians killed, it's horrendous, right? Um, it doesn't matter where it is or what the circumstances are. It's horrendous. But in Syria, what felt so unforgivable to me was that There was this huge discrepancy between the rhetoric coming out of the White House, particularly, and the reality of the actual policy. And so it was Bashar al-Assad must go, but then nothing was done to actually make him go. And if you remember the great words of Lyndon Johnson, you know, if you tell a man to go to hell, you best be sure you can make him go there. Right. Because if you can't, you look weak. And that's exactly what happened to the U.S. They said, Bashar al-Assad must go. And then they did nothing to make him go. And he didn't go. And then they looked weak. And then they said, you know, chemical weapons are a red line. And they crossed the red line. And they killed somewhere in the region 1,400 people in East Ghouta and on and on and on. And there were no consequences to pay for it. There was no punishment for it. And the message was, you can do whatever you want. You can kill your people, burn them, torture them, gas them. There will be no consequences for this. Syria is officially the war of no consequences. And that's what made me angry. And that's what made me resentful. Not that I was necessarily arguing that intervention was the best course of action, but rather that there was a stage early on, right after Libya, where people thought that intervention was coming because of the no fly zone that had been implemented in Libya. And when you allowed people to kind of continue to live under that illusion, and there was always this sense that the U.S. might get involved any minute now. You're basically letting people go out and march into that hail of bullets because they think that that will help them get assistance for their country. And that, to me, was what felt kind of unforgivable about uh, uh, the U.S.'s Syria policy.
1: Did taking a, a position that was opposing the government that openly, that cause you any difficulties in journalist?
2: You mean as the US government? Yes. Oh, so at the time I was not as outspoken. I'm being outspoken now because it's sort of, you know, quite a few years later and mm-hmm. um, we're having a sort of slightly more informal chat. Um, and frankly, I'm not saying anything that hasn't been expressed by a lot of people in positions of power in the US. And, so, but at the time, no, I bit my tongue and, you know, I, I, I think obviously I privately sent Ben Rhodes an email saying, I hope you're sleeping soundly as Aleppo Burns. And listen, did I cross the line? Absolutely. Um, was it the ethical,
3: right thing to do as a journalist? No. As a human being, I'm okay with that. I'm okay that I did that.
1: So, I mean, I personally would love to hear every story I got through or experiences, but- Let's turn to that question of the role of journalists. Yeah. Um, in, particularly in this polarized era. And you do write about the importance of listening and being open to other people's perspectives. Um, yeah. And of course, we wouldn't be so polarized if we did that, but how? How do we get to that? Um, where both sides are willing to listen to each other. To go back to an era of actual compromise and bipartisanship. Is there a way to reach those who disagree with you?
2: I mean, that's such a good question. It's such a good question. And I wish I'd come out right away and be like, yes. <laughs> but instead, it's more of a like, I think there's a chance. <laughs> um, I do think there's a chance. And be, I tell you why. Because I travel in a lot of places where I get to look at America from like the bird's eye view. And I still believe that there's a lot more that binds us together in America than that which divides us. And I'm not saying the divisions aren't real, and I'm not saying they're not deep. Um, but I don't want people in the US to lose sight of how many common shared values there still are. And I also don't want people to lose sight, you know, Americans haven't been at war for a really long time okay but when they have been at war it's been like a thousand miles away and they didn't really feel it but to live in a country that is being destroyed by war there is no greater horror and i don't think americans have a full full sense of that and so i see us kind of careening down this slippery slope of dehumanization and not listening to each other and always labeling the other as like you're an ignoramus you're an idiot you're a terrorist you're whatever, wor- you know, all the terrible words that people use, um, and maybe they don't realize where, that's, where that slippery slope ends, um, but I've seen it, and I've lived through it firsthand, and it's, it's not pretty, and it's not a good place, and I know deep down that nobody actually really wants that, yeah. so, you know, is it easy? No, but, like, it's really the only option. It's really the only option is to learn how to listen to each other, how to accept that there are fundamental differences and how to try to build consensus out of that. Um, Again, I'm not saying it's easy and I don't have all the solutions. Thankfully I don't have to, but I do know from covering war for all these years that that really is the only option because you
1: just don't want to go there. Well, and despite your efforts, to tell the truth and to get the facts out. Um, You have been labeled as fake news. um, And Stephen Colbert asked you about this. And you had a great answer for him. So I was hoping you could share your thoughts on that.
2: I mean, you know, I I say, uh, yeah, I mean, what I told him was like, of course, it's disillusioning and depressing. And you're in a war zone and people are shooting at you and you're being labeled as fake news. It's like, I think it's lazy, um, but it's catchy and people have really cottoned on to it. I don't care so much for me, like come at me, call me fake news. Okay. But for my colleagues who are independent journalists working in countries across the world, many of them repressive autocracies, um, that kind of a label being bandied about by the president of the United States actually makes their lives dangerous. Okay. We're not talking about someone just slinging mud at them on Twitter, we're talking about them potentially uh, being imprisoned. So it, it, those words have consequences. And I think we need to be careful about that. Moreover, I feel very strongly, and I mentioned this early on, that like we are in this really pivotal existential moment, where there are forces in the world that are pumping out endless amounts of misinformation and disinformation, and are trying to create the idea that nothing is real that nothing is true, that there's no such thing as a lie, that there's no such thing as a fact. And the goal of that kind of bombardment of disinformation is not necessarily to persuade you that vaccines are bad or that climate change doesn't exist. They're to persuade you that there's so much noise out there that you no longer believe in any of it, that you kind of shut down as a unit. And in that moment, when you shut down, when you stop distinguishing between fact and fiction, when you stop acknowledging that there's a difference between lies and the truth, you are absolutely susceptible to totalitarianism. Like this is something that Hannah Arendt has written about looking at these moments in history, when societies have kind of capitulated to uh, autocratic totalitarian forces. So I feel like more than ever, and like, Lord knows we have some work to do and we have some trust to build back and we have made mistakes. We are not angels in this. Um, but like for the sake of everyone's sanity and for our shared humanity, I really think we all need to get back on the same page with regards to the idea of, of, of believing just in basic facts and understanding that we have biases and we see the world in different ways, but we can still agree that black is black and white
0: we hope so as well. And maybe just to end on a lighter note to end this podcast, um, do you have any? You know, you, throughout your book, you talk about the importance of risk taking, uncertainty, handling fear, uh, listening to people, embracing other perspectives. Do you have any advice for you know young aspiring journalists on how to get involved in journalism?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, and there's so many different ways depending on what interests you, what excites you, where your heart is. Um, I would tell people, like, you've got to go with your gut and your passion, okay, because it's a really hard job, and people are going to try to tear you down, and no matter what side of journalism, you're, whether you're covering conflict or politics, like, you will find yourself in some really hairy situations that are distressing, and it will take a toll on your personal life and all the rest of it, so, like, you got to want it in your belly, and you have to have that
3: passion and that drive,
2: and the only thing I would say is, like, find mentors. That's the best way to learn. Go out there and learn from the best. Watch them in action. Ask questions. Be curious. You know, we have such a tendency today as a society, it's all about that I'm talking, I'm talking, and then you're talking but I'm not really listening to what you're saying. I'm just like waiting until I can speak again. Like that is so toxic and so terrible for public discourse and it's the worst kind of journalism. So, you know, tip number 1 would be learn how to listen. Learn how to listen to people find where your passion is, go out and, and, and find people who can help you achieve your dreams and, and, and learn how to be a great journalist. We need a lot of them. So yeah,
0: definitely. And what's in store for you in the, in the next months or years?
2: I mean, I definitely want to still keep covering Myanmar because sure. I think it's a really important story and I, and I don't, I don't want the world to give up mm-hmm. on that story. Um, I'm also looking very closely at what's happening on the Russian-Ukrainian border with the buildup of you know, 50,000 troops on the border and in Crimea. I'm looking very closely to see Alexei Navalny, the Russian opposition leader, who I um, interviewed uh, before he went back to Russia and who now appears to be in very, very bad shape in a Russian penal colony and his allies are saying he could die. Um, so those are just a few of the stories that I'm looking at. I'm looking very closely to see what's going to happen with Iran and the nuclear deal be reshaped, what will it look like, how it will be different. Um, there's a lot of stories out there that I'm excited to tell.
0: But well, we look forward to following you in that journey. And, you know, this was a phenomenal discussion. We just want to thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank
2: for having you. me. I love chatting with both of you and I love what you're doing. So
3: thank you.
1: Thank you very much. And thank you for bringing the fact yeah. to the public we taking the risk that you take so that we can all learn from it. Thank you very much for being with us today. You're a great guest, and there's so much more to talk about.
3: Thank you.
0: Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Intergenerational Politics. We hope you enjoyed it. We always love reading through your comments and your reviews, so let us know your thoughts about this episode of Intergenerational Politics on Apple Podcasts to support future episodes. You can also feel free to share our podcast with a family member or a friend to make sure that everyone is a part of Intergenerational Dialogues. Thank you so much again. See you next time.